While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. The Atlanta newspaper reported that the people of Athens were demanding the abolishment of football. Think about it for a minute. UGA students and faculty, along with the people of Athens, demanding an end to football. The Athens Banner newspaper wrote, The Banner here and now declares unrelenting war on football and will carry forth this movement to abolish it in Georgia from the faculty to the legislative halls if necessary. The year was 1897, and football wasn't exactly what it is today. People could only watch the game in person or read about it the next day in the paper. Obviously, no one could watch the game in a restaurant or bar, no one had money on internet fantasy football, and none of the players appeared in video games. Nobody drove red pickup trucks, and the first UGA wouldn't be seen on field for another 60 years. It was the year that UGA, with victories against Clemson and Georgia Tech under their belt, played the University of Virginia in Brisbane Park in Atlanta. It was the year a player's accidental death would almost bring about the end of football in Georgia. This is Moving Through Georgia, Episode 15, The Near Death of Georgia Football. I have a lot of sources for this story, primarily a 2009 article in the Georgia Historical Quarterly by Christopher Myers. The first college football game was played between Princeton and Rutgers in 1869, and the game in its infancy looked more like rugby, and it was fairly violent. Initially, players couldn't block for the player carrying the ball. Slowly, the concept of other players running alongside the ball carrier developed, and blocking was eventually allowed in 1888, as long as the blockers did not have their arms extended. In the same year, tackling was permitted between the waist and the knee. So the game changed from a spread-out group of players to one big mass of players going down the field. Tackles below the waist led to more head injuries at a time when players didn't really wear significant headgear. The primary play for the time was a play that was called, um, by its creator, running mass wedge through the center. This was a University of Chicago football coach named Amos Stagg in 1893. It was more commonly called the flying wedge. Stagg published a book of football plays, and most of which involved everybody on offense grouping around the ball carrier, building up momentum and moving forward, and basically demolishing everything in its path. There's a play called the Princeton Wedge that looks like those movies kind of about the Roman Empire when the legions would lock their shields and all march together in a square. The goal was to cause serious damage to the other side. I can sympathize with this. When my dad was a scout leader, the kids used to play a game called Kill the Guy with the Ball that was pretty much the same as this version of football. The rules regarding substitution of players were also more like rugby's. Players played offense and defense, and once they were taken out of the game, they couldn't return. Usually, particularly good players would be targeted by the other team and just hammered until they were forced to leave the game. Through the 1880s and 1890s, different colleges would ban the game in reaction to on-field brutality, but none of the bans lasted for long. 
Theodore Roosevelt, before he became president, wrote an article in 1893 in which he said that mass plays should be abolished to reduce brutality and violence. Eligibility issues also arose in the 1890s as what they called tramp players would transfer to a college for an important game and then back to another to finish the season. In 1809, a chemistry teacher named Charles Hurdy brought UGA's Athletic Association to life. The baseball team played its first game against Emory in 1891, and the football team began intercollegiate play in 1892. The Bulldogs were 5-1 in 1894. Pop Warner took the reins as head coach in 1895 for a 3-4 season and in 1896 for an undefeated season consisting of four games, led by a quarterback named Richard Vonalbod Gammon. Von Gammon, or Gammon as he was known, grew up in Rome, Georgia, where he was renowned for excelling in several sports. He played quarterback for the undefeated 1896 team in his first year at UGA and was moved from quarterback to fullback in 1897. Although UGA had two victories and an undefeated season behind them, the University of Virginia Cavaliers were a better established team and would be a difficult foe to face. The game was played at Brisbane Park in front of a crowd of 5,000 and at halftime Virginia led 11-4. In the third quarter, the Cavaliers were on offense. A Virginia player took the ball and dove into a crowd of Georgia defenders. Gammon may or may not have hit the ball carrier. Details differ depending on who's telling the story. It seems like it was a bit of a pileup. What matters is that when the play ended and the team members began to form up for the next play, it was obvious that Gammon was hurt. He had hit his head during the play and was laying on the field, and again, the story varies among the tellers. The Georgia Historical Quarterly article and the contemporary articles I read from newspapers said that Gammon was unconscious and was carried off the field to be taken to Grady Hospital. Some other versions of the story have Gammon standing after a while and walking off the field under his own power. Apparently, the team captain walked up to Gammon and asked, Vaughn, you're not going to give up, are you? To which he responded, I've got too much Georgia grit for that. Either way, at some point, Gammon was taken to the hospital, where he died shortly after his parents arrived. Newspapers around the state immediately announced the death of football, denouncing what the Rome Tribune called the deadly game. UGA disbanded their team and so did Mercer University, and the Atlanta City Council passed a ban on football within the city. Southern Evangelicals already had a record of kind of being at odds with athletic departments in schools and colleges, which they considered an innovation brought from the North. They felt that virtuous Southern students shouldn't be involved in organized violence or activities that could promote gambling. Various Methodist and Baptist congregations denounced football, among other sports, as being a degrading distraction from honest studies and work. The day after Gammon's death, a group of Methodist ministers in Atlanta gathered to condemn the sport of football. Reverend Warren Candler, the president of Emory College, declared that football was worse than slugging matches. The governor and his wife attended a football game, and afterwards, the governor's wife told a reporter she was shocked at the violence and never wanted to see another game. 
Editorials and newspapers throughout Georgia decried football as a brutal and deadly sport that should be eliminated for the student's safety. So in reaction, both the Georgia Senate and House began writing bills outlawing the game of football. The final version of the bill passed by the House and Senate made it a misdemeanor for any person or persons to engage in any prize or match game of football or other game. Bill was sent to the governor to be signed. Then things started to change. Newspapers began to criticize the bill as going too far. That's funny because the morning I came across the article that inspired this episode, I had actually watched an episode of the TV show South Park called Sarcastaball. And in that episode, a parent reacts to a general outcry that football's become too violent by really watering the game down so much that it's barely a game at all. In that episode, eventually football just becomes a game where players toss a balloon and hug each other for points and, you know, to stay safe. Well, things don't change. Ten days after Gammon's death, while the bill banning football sat on the governor's desk, the New York Evening World ran a political cartoon. The cartoon was titled, The Type of Football That Would Be Popular with Georgia Legislators, and it showed men in suits sitting on cushions and drinking tea having conversations. Basically, Sarcastaball in the 1800s. Well, the governor of Georgia was a UGA graduate who hoped his own son would someday play football. However, he knew which way the political winds were blowing and told a reporter that he planned to reluctantly sign the bill. But he held on to it for a while. I really believe he wanted to wait as long as possible to make sure he was completely aware of what public opinion was and to see if there was just some way out of this. And eventually he got it. It was a letter from Gammon's mother which gave him the political leverage he needed to publicly announce he wasn't going to sign the bill. Rosalind Burns Gammon wrote to her representative that her son loved his college and the game of football and she did not want his death to become the argument against athletic programs. It would, she said, be inexpressibly sad to have the cause he held so dear injured by his sacrifice. Well, that's all it took. The governor came out in favor of football and refused to sign the bill. The legislature tried to override that, but they couldn't and the issue was ended. Football in Georgia was saved by a letter from Gammon's mother. Okay, this is the two-minute warning, and this is the time I tell you that Moving Through Georgia is a history podcast that covers Northeast Georgia. This is the last episode of season one, and it has been quite a ride. There will be a season two, and if you are subscribed, please stay subscribed because I'm going to be sending out some extras and the occasional episode as I start writing season two. If you have any questions, comments, or constructive criticism, please feel free to send them to movingthroughgeorgia at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I am a big fan of Halloween, and as we get closer to Halloween, I'm going to put out some kind of spooky episodes. It's a good time to be a podcaster at Halloween because there's lots of spooky stuff to do. And thank you for listening and being part of this. Please consider telling a friend, consider leaving a review. And season two is going to happen. Nineteen football players died of injuries sustained in the game in 1905 alone. The NCAA was formed to address the issue and a few rule changes were made, including legalizing the forward pass and outlawing mass formation plays. 
1910, it was decided that at least seven players on offense had to be at the line of scrimmage during the snap, denying them space to build up momentum. Also, and this amazes me, they made it illegal for offensive players to engage in interlocking interference. Basically, they couldn't just link their arms and smash through the line like a runaway train. And that isn't to say that football has been made completely safe. The long-term effects of concussion are still being studied, but have already led to potential players opting to play other sports other than football. Modern protective gear, although it is significantly better than those UGA players had in 1897, can reduce the chance of catastrophic harm, but really has little effect on the chance of concussion. Rule changes are turning out to be more effective than increased protective gear in keeping players safe, so wear your helmet and follow the rules. That's all.